0: from the book of Jonah. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went to the opposite direction. To get away from the Lord, he went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket, he went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. And then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, because for he had told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? He groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and we'll become calm again. I know this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. But then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. O Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death O Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights.
1: Then Jonah prayed to the Lord God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercy. I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. And I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out on the beach.
2: Um, Well, it's really good morning, everyone. It's really good to see you. Um, Ruth and Anna, while while I'm speaking, Ruth and Anna have been listening to God throughout the week, uh, and they're going to carry on listening to God. So while I'm speaking, if you're more of a visual person, um, you don't have to look at me, good news. You can watch some actually talented people uh, giving a sort of visual sermon. Um, so feel free to direct your attention wherever you think it's, it's helpful for you. And uh, let's, let's hope that God speaks to all of us. So when Mackie told me that I would be preaching on Jonah this morning, I was chuffed. Not just because I was relieved that it wasn't one of those genealogies from Chronicles, uh, but because I genuinely love the book of Jonah it's just such a great story, isn't it? It's got everything you could want from a good story. It's got comedy, drama, failure and redemption, highs and lows, uh, temper tantrums, in Jonah's case, and most importantly, a giant fish. But as I've read that story again in preparation for today, I've realised that Jonah is also a really weird book. It just doesn't quite follow the rules. It's sat there in the Minor Prophets, but it's so different from the others that it sticks out like a sore thumb. See, most of the prophetic books follow the rules. They're specific to a particular time period in Israel's history, and they normally address particular concerns that were going on at that time. And there's normally a heroic prophet who finds themselves surrounded by a sea of unbelief and wickedness. And their job is to remind God's people of the covenant that they've made with him, and call them back to him. And then we have Jonah in the book of Jonah. And Jonah breaks all the rules. Because we know roughly when he lived, um, but we don't know much else about him. And the story itself doesn't seem to be set at any particular time. It makes no mention at all of what's going on in Israel, for example. That's really strange. In fact, Jonah is the only Israelite in the story mostly about pagans. And while pagans are mentioned in the other prophetic books, they're usually just the bad guys. It doesn't go much further than that. But in Jonah, they actually behave a lot better than the prophet does. Again, really weird. Instead of being sent to the Israelite king or his people to remind them of the covenant, Jonah is being sent to people who've never heard of God or his law. So my question to you this morning is, what is going on here in Jonah? Why is this weird story in our Bibles? I think the answer to that is partly that Jonah realises a really important spiritual truth. And he can help us to realise it as well. And it's right there in verse 9 of chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles open, you might want to check that I'm not just making this up. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Everything that happens to Jonah serves to teach him that lesson. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he can offer it to whoever he wants. Even people we don't like, even people we think don't deserve it. You might know that at the end of World War II, the remaining high-level Nazis, so Germany was defeated, the remaining high-level Nazi leaders were rounded up, and put on trial at a place called Nuremberg. Has everyone heard of Nuremberg? Yeah, a few nods, okay. So these men had conspired between them to tear the world apart, to murder millions of innocent people, to prop up a brutal regime for their own benefit. These were not good men. The world wanted to see them punished. But while they were on trial at Nuremberg, they were provided with a chaplain an American man called Henry Gericke is a personal hero of mine. Now, Henry Gerecki would visit these war criminals in their cells, read the Bible with them, pray with them, and if they wanted it, he'd offer them communion. Many of those men were eventually executed for what they'd done. And Henry Gerecki was right there with them at the end, walking with them to the scaffold. Now, I can't imagine that Henry Gericke particularly wanted that job. After all, he'd just been serving in the war as a chaplain. He probably just wanted to go home, like everyone else. I suspect the last place he wanted to be sent to was Nuremberg. And I suspect the last people he wanted to be sent to were these high-level Nazis. Any more than Jonah wanted to go to Nineveh. These men are the enemy, the epitome, of everything that's wrong with the world. But it gets worse for Henry because over the weeks and the months that he's ministering to these men, he notices something really disturbing. Some of these war criminals are repenting of their sins. Some of them are putting their trust in Jesus, seemingly. Some even talked on the eve of their execution of a sense of peace, of being forgiven. Despite all that these men had done, all the horrible acts they'd committed, and they really were horrible, God seemed to be offering them his salvation through Henry Gericke. And the poor chaplain became convinced that for at least some of them, their new faith was genuine. They'd said, yes, they really were saved. I just want to do a quick show of hands if you're feeling brave. Uh, Don't worry if you're not. Who here thinks that's fair? Who thinks it's fair that Someone like von Ribbentrop or uh, Fritz Saukel or Wilhelm Keitel can live the kind of lives that they led, do all the damage that they did, and then be forgiven by God. Anyone want to say that's fair? Oh, okay. A few more than I thought. Charlie. Char- Charlotte Peace. Charles, Charles Peace. Peace. Okay, I'll have to look him up. Thank you. Well, yeah, there's a bit of a mixed reaction there. Some of you felt that was fair, some of you not. Um, I have to say, I struggle with that a little bit. I struggle with the idea that someone can can live the kind of life they led and then sort of get away with it at the end. And if you're with me on that, then you'll find some sympathy with Jonah as you read his book. You might feel that God wasted his salvation on those men. Because in the book of Jonah, God offers his salvation to all the wrong people, to the bad guys. See, Nineveh was an Assyrian city and Assyria was the major threat to the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, at the time that Jonah's writing. The Assyrians were not good people in Jonah's eyes. As far as he's concerned, they don't deserve saving any more than the high level Nazis did. They were cruel. They were warlike. We know from other parts of scripture that they practiced witchcraft, idolatry. They exploited people for money. They were not good people. So what is God playing at by sending Jonah to them? Does he really want to give them a chance to repent? Well, yeah, he does. Despite everything, God seems to love the bad guys. If you read the rest of the book, I think it was the uh, restore reading for today, wasn't it? Chapters 3 and 4. The Ninevites repent at the preaching of Jonah and humble themselves before God. And God spares them. Jonah is not happy about this, not happy at all. He yells at God. I knew this would happen. This is why I didn't want to come. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that you would have mercy on these evil people. If you're anything like me, you might might sympathize with Jonah here. We might be able to think of individual people or groups of people that we privately think just aren't really good enough for God. We might never say it out loud or we might never put it in that way. But part of us thinks they don't really belong in heaven. Thankfully, it isn't our call to make. God is sovereign in salvation, just as he is in judgment. As he tells Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he gives it to all the wrong people. And that is good news for me. And that is good news for you, because guess what? We're all the wrong people. We don't deserve it either. We haven't earned our salvation, have we? It was given to us despite all the bad things we've done. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God for that. So this is going to work. Have the next thing that would be going? Okay. Um, salvation belongs to the Lord, and it comes even when we run from it. When we say no, when we turn and leg it in the opposite direction, God's salvation chases us down and sweeps us into His story. Like Jonah, we as the church might sometimes be a bit reluctant in our prophetic task. We might worry about what people will think if we share the gospel. What they will say if we admit to knowing Jesus. Perhaps we worry about losing friends or our respected place in the community as a church. I wonder, has anyone here got an example of a time that they said no to God? That God asked them to do something and you said no? Or maybe you ran away from him and then came back? Has anyone got an example they'd like to share? Um, Mackie can... Um, come and find you with the microphone if you're feeling brave. Doesn't have to be a long one.
1: Thank you.
3: Quite what you want, Matt, but, um, it's an example saying yes, because of the history of saying no and knowing that it was awful. But basically when we were called to Tanzania, I really didn't want to go. I'd said to God, I'll go anywhere you like long as it's got flush lavatories and what do you know tanzania is fully equipped (laughs) i really 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 didn't want to go but i knew by that stage and i've been a christian for about 20 25 years that if i said no the choice was being disobedient and guilty or obedient and uncomfortable and i chose to be obedient but uncomfortable because of the experience of being disobedient before. I can't name the times when I've been chasing, but I felt sufficiently bad by that time that I knew that running away wasn't an option. I was a disobedient, uncomfortable sheep in Tanzania.
2: Thank you so much for sharing, that's great. Brilliant. Well, Jonah was a man who knew how to say no to God in some style. <laughs> so he didn't just say no, he decides he's gonna get on a boat and run away from God that way. He's going to head to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain, which is just about as far as you can get from Nineveh in the ancient world. So Jonah thinks, surely God won't be able to reach me here. But he's making a pretty classic mistake that lots of ancient people made, because they all thought that gods were bound to the land that they came from, right? So if there's a god of Westbury Park, as long as you can get out of Westbury Park, then he can't do anything to you. You don't have to obey him anymore. But we know that the Lord isn't like that. and Jonah knows the Lord isn't like that. On the boat, he admits he is the Lord of heaven, the maker of both the sea and the dry land. This is not a God we can run away from. But in his patience, God allows Jonah to try, allows him to reject the presence and the calling of the living God, and choose to live amongst false gods in Tarshish. He even works Jonah's disobedience into his plans, causing pagan sailors to come to know and worship him. And those sailors would never have encountered God's power if Jonah had just done what he was asked the first time around. But we serve a God who can use our every fault, our every mistake, our every foible, for his own purposes. Don't get me wrong, I think God respects our choices. We are free to say no, but God is sovereign and his word does not return to him empty. His salvation is not going to be derailed by our disobedience. It comes even when we run from it. It was going to be offered to Nineveh, whatever Jonah thought about it, and God wanted Jonah to be the one to offer it. You might be wondering why. Why, if God cares about the Ninevites so much, if he's so desperate that they hear from him, why doesn't he pick a better prophet for the job? Maybe one who doesn't hate them, for example, or uh, one who will just do what he's told. Jonah just seems like completely the wrong person for this mission. And he is the wrong person. But as we've said already, God chooses all the wrong people, not just to receive his salvation, but to be the bearers of it as well. The start of our passage tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Or the word of the Lord was given to Jonah or something like that in that translation. What it means is this message was as much for Jonah as it was for the people of Nineveh. Jonah too needed to be saved, saved from his narrow-minded elitism, his stubborn pride, his stubborn refusal to obey the calling of God in his life. That's why God had to chase him down, couldn't let him get away, couldn't leave him as he was. He loved Jonah too much, just as he loved the Ninevites. Both Jonah and the Ninevites needed to be transformed by the coming of God's word to them. In the same way, we might feel here that we are the wrong people to take the gospel to Westbury Park. To our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues. Some people have talked about a sense of inadequacy already. And the truth is, we are the wrong people. We might want to turn and run because what He's asking of us, what God's asking of us, seems impossible but we know that God loves using all the wrong people. He has chosen us to take his word to others and wants to transform both us and them in the process. Salvation belongs to the Lord and he saves us even through death. There's a moment in Matthew's gospel and I think Luke's as well, where Jesus is asked for a miraculous sign by the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, no, he refuses. He says that they're only gonna be given one sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. So what on earth does that mean? Jesus explains that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jonah's experience of being thrown into the waves Swallowed by the fish and then spat out on dry land, points to something greater than just that story. It points, says Jesus, to his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's because of this that Jonah truly belongs among the prophets, and the book of Jonah belongs among the prophetic books. But you might be thinking, hang on, Matt, Jonah doesn't actually die. And you're right, not physically, but in a way, he does. Because Jonah disobeyed God. He'd run away from him. He'd rejected the source of all life. In other words, he'd sinned. And we know what the penalty for sin is, don't we? Death. So Jonah is a man on the run, condemned and living on borrowed time. He thinks he's escaped to Tarshish, but God's judgment, like his salvation, can't be run from. A mighty storm begins to shake the boat. And in that moment, God offers Jonah a really simple choice. Either he can continue to reject his calling, continue to choose disobedience, and he will drag down the other sailors to death with him. Or he can accept his condemnation, knowing full well that it will mean his death, but saving everyone else by his sacrifice. We know what he chooses, don't we? He chooses to trust himself into God's hands. As soon as Jonah is thrown off that boat, he is as good as dead because in Hebrew thought the sea was death. Jonah accepts this, and as he hits the water and disappears under the waves, he feels his life ebbing away. That's what he says. He is abandoned and cast from the sight of God. This is death. Jonah's story's over. Until suddenly, it isn't. God's salvation breaks into the maelstrom of death in the form of a huge fish that saves Jonah's life. And there's no doubt in Jonah's mind that he has been saved from the pit itself. This story is amazing. A guilty man accepts his sins and submits to God's judgment to save those around him. And God delivers him even through that experience of death. Yet as Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, something greater than Jonah is now here. Let's be clear, Jonah may point towards Jesus, but he isn't Jesus. Jesus never disobeyed God, he never ran from his calling, he didn't have any sins of his own to be punished for. So how amazing then that he willingly bears our sins, yours and mine, and submits to death, a death he didn't deserve, so that they can be dealt with. Our very own Jonah, he goes down into death for us, experiencing an agony of separation from God that Jonah couldn't have imagined as he sank beneath the waves. Like Jonah, Jesus is buried, and for three days and three nights, it seems as if God's salvation has failed. Maybe death does get the last laugh after all. But then, just as Jonah is deposited on dry land, Jesus walks out of his own tomb. Not many people can say that. We sang earlier, death cannot hold him. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and even in death, he saves. You might be wondering what this means for you. Well, if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, then it means that you've died with Christ. Your old self went to the cross with him and you were buried with him. Better yet, you've been raised to new life with him. This is the great truth that we celebrate in baptism. and I know we have some of those coming up, which is fantastic. If you're a Christian, then Colossians 3 says that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The life as you see it now is not everything there is. When he is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. But maybe you're sat here this morning and you don't really know what you believe. Maybe like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, you wish God would send you a sign, some miracle, miracle to show that there's some power behind all these words, that he's real. Well, I'm not going to do a miracle up on stage, but I do want to point you this morning to the same sign that Jesus offered, the sign of Jonah. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the true miracle, the sign that makes sense of everything else, that proves he really was who he claimed to be. If that doesn't convince you, then nothing else will. Jonah points us towards the one who goes down into death and brings us out of it, who tastes death on our behalf and offers us life in all its fullness. This is the hope we proclaim to Westbury Park and beyond. This is our prophetic task. Salvation belongs to the Lord.